Today our sermon text is Psalm 111. Psalm 111 and Psalm 112 are kind of companion texts that go together. Next week we'll look at Psalm 112. Uh, This week, Psalm 111. They are, like the other Psalms, poetry. Now, Now our poetry and our culture and our language is often based on rhyme. I, like you, I'm familiar with many poems that that have a certain rhyme, a certain cadence to them perhaps. Uh, one, one poem that's just a very simple poem that I learned when I was a little kid. My parents had this book of poetry. They had a poem by Ogden Nash. And it, it began, In far Tibet there live a llama. He got no papa, got no mama. Got no wife and got no chillin'. Got no use for penicillin. It goes on from there, much more of the same. You get the idea. It's just a silly little ditty. And, and there's this rhyme and this cadence that hold it together. And that's how poetry often works in English and in our culture. Hebrew poetry is altogether different. Uh, it's not so much the principle of rhyming and cadence that hold it together. Uh, but there will be other things. Sometimes what holds a, a Hebrew poem together is the concept of parallelism. Where it will say a thing one way and then it will say the exact same thing another way right under it you'll see that often in the psalms and then another thing that that often is used in hebrew poetry is the idea of acrostics uh, an acrostic poem that would would follow the hebrew alphabet where each line of the poem uh, will start with succeeding letters of the hebrew alphabet there are 22 letters in that alphabet so they'll usually have 22 lines and uh, just as if we had a poem that started with the letter A, then the letter B, then the letter C, so they will, within theirs, uh, start off with the letters Aleph, Beit, Gimel, Dalit, A, and so forth. Um, this is one such poem that, that is an acrostic poem, uh, as is uh, Psalm 112 next week. And so we will, we will look at them and see how, though, though as poetry, it might not be what we're exactly familiar with. We understand that it's, it's Hebrew poetry, and and that is the, the way it is all held together and the, the structure that it's been given. So I'm going to read to you now uh, Psalm 111, our sermon text. If you would, if you're able, please rise out of respect for God's holy and inspired word. This is indeed the word of God. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright in the congregation Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He provides food for those who fear, who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. He has shown his people the power of his works in giving them the inheritance of the nations. The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. He sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. 
Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word, our only infallible rule for faith and practice. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. Would you pray with me once more? Our Lord and our God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its truth. We thank you that it is dependable and reliable and unchanging and that you speak to us through it. We pray that you indeed would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and that our hearts might be fertile soil in which you might be able to plant your seed of truth as we see it in your word. May it blossom into full flower in our lives that we might always live to give glory to you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. That is why we live, after all. We live to give glory to God. What is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. We live to bring glory to God. In short, we live to live lives of worship. Right? Not just on Sunday morning, not just as we gather in this sanctuary to, to hear a sermon preached and to sing songs of praise and to offer up prayers and, and those sorts of things, but our whole lives really ought to be marked by worship. That is, bringing glory to God. Not drawing attention to ourselves, but rather shining glory on God. Not a glory that we bring, but a glory that, that He has and that we reflect. This, this psalm here uh, could be termed a, a wisdom psalm. Sam made the point that, that that passage that we looked at in the Proverbs and this psalm are connected by that notion of wisdom that we see there. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Indeed, this would be easily considered a wisdom psalm but it also is quite clearly a psalm of praise. And I think from that we gather this truth, which is a helpful truth, that true wisdom will always lead to true worship. That's kind of an undergirding, undergirding fact, an undergirding point that, that supports this whole passage, this whole chapter, this whole psalm. True wisdom will lead to true worship. So we want to know what true worship is, right? We want to understand what Christian worship is supposed to be like. And we see certain things in this passage. I'm going to break it down into three parts. One is that Christian worship is public. Secondly, Christian worship is contextualized. It has a context. And third, Christian worship is pedagogical, just a big fancy word, meaning that it is for education and training. So first off, Christian worship is public. Now, I'm not just talking about this thing we're doing here right now, this kind of worship, like I said, but that certainly is a part of it, right? That's certainly a big part of it, actually, and a, a part that the Psalms speak to quite extensively, and certainly this psalm does as well. And we need to understand that, that when I say that, that Christian worship is a public thing, uh, I, I'm not meaning merely that we should gather here together, although that's part of it, but also just that it's not something that we just do on our own. It's not just something that we quietly do 
just between Jesus and me. It is something that should encompass the whole of our lives, and we should, as the passage says here, praise the Lord. We should sing praises to him. We should exalt him. We should praise the Lord. Now, now we'll find when we come into the, the corporate worship of the Lord uh, that we're experiencing right now, that, that I prefer a lot of, of terminology that, that many people would consider outdated and old-fashioned, uh, especially in the modern uh, church of, of the West. Um, a lot of times you'll, you'll see a room like this, and it will be called the auditorium. Right? And, and up in this area up here, well, this is the, the stage, right? And, and you all would be the audience, right? And, and I, I don't think that that's the best terminology. I think we want to use a better terminology because when we say that it's a public thing, we, we need to understand that Christian worship is not something that is observed, Right? It's not something that we, we show up to observe as if it is some show. Right? It is something that we partake in. It is something that, that we are a part of. You, you are not the audience. You are the congregation of worshipers. This is not a stage. I use the term chancel, right, is what we refer to it. Not that that's necessarily a better term than stage, but when we think about a stage, aren't we naturally drawn to think in terms of, of like a performance that is taking place on it. This ought not be a performance. It is a participatory act by all of us worshiping the Lord. Right? And we see that this room is not so much an auditorium where performances are given. It is a sanctuary to which we retreat that we might give glory to God. Our corporate worship is that worship that, that best approximates the worship that we will experience in heaven. Right? We need to have a worship that is God-directed and participatory by all of us. Right? None of us should show up here on Sunday morning and think that merely by being present, well, I get my worship points, right? and God is pleased with that because I showed up. No, it's, it's something that we should participate in. We should actively be doing. Sinclair Ferguson makes a really interesting point here that I'd never really thought of, but it makes a lot of sense. He says that, that we, especially in our current context with much of what modern worship has become, need to beware of a return to the medieval church. And what he means by that is that, that the medieval worship was marked by certain things. One of them was the idea of performance, that the medieval worship was seen far more as a a performance than something that was participated in. They would have choirs sing songs, and that's not to say there's anything wrong with the choir. A choir is a wonderful addition to have in, in, in a worship service, to, to add those wonderfully made songs, those sounds of music, singing praises to the Lord on behalf of the congregation to the Lord. But it shouldn't just be a concert by the choir that we come to witness. And that's what had largely the church had become in its worship in the medieval times where where the congregation would not sing at all it would simply be a choir would sing all the songs and the congregation would sit there silently 
and the service itself would, often, would, would be in Latin, of course, right? which nobody even understood what was being said, but, but it, it sounded fancy and it was impressive and there were lots of you know, smells and bells, as they say, and, and lots of pretty things. And so it was a nice performance that was put on. And, and the visual was more important than the verbal. Right? The, the things that people saw, there was this drama being played out. In fact, that they, they would speak in such a way as to say that the, the drama of the liturgy was performed. Right? And people watched as the drama of the liturgy was performed. They were an audience, largely. And there was a primacy that was given to the megachurch. They didn't have a term megachurch back in that day. But think of the, the, the churches that were most influential uh, they were of course the churches that are are the grand cathedrals of europe that you think about right that that they see those churches just like today held more sway in the eyes of a lot of people but there's problem with those types of churches i'm not saying that a big church is necessarily a bad church but but there is a problem in that it's very easy in a big church to just become an observer to not really be involved in the worship of that church, not really involved in the life of that church, to just kind of come in and out and fade in and out and be there and then not be there and not be noticed. And, and maybe you're involved in the worship and maybe you're not. And nobody really notices because there's really too much going on for anybody to pay attention to that. Right? We can all fall into these observer tendencies and we need to be careful not to. Because we are called, verse 1 says, to praise the Lord. It's important to notice here that this is uh, what is called a uh, transitive verb. It, it's a verb that has an object, right? The psalmist doesn't just say, praise, and move on from there, right? Because true praise, true worship has to have an object, right? It can't just be... Praise. I think that a lot of times we think in those terms in our culture, right? We're going to go do some religious activity, right? We're going to be some, some people of faith. We're going to be kind of churchy or whatever. And so we maybe sing some songs or do some things or whatever. But there's really no focus, no direction to it. What the psalmist is telling us here is that we need to praise the Lord. In Hebrew, right? It's hallelujah. Yah, the Yah being short for Yahweh, the covenant God, the creator God, the God who is. True worship, true praise must be offered to him. And we'll talk more about him later. It also needs to be said that it's not going to be a mere formalism, right? It's not just going through the motions. I think a lot of times we can fall into that trap, can we not? Uh, you know, I, I've told the story before, I think, about the, the one monk who said to another monk, I bet you a horse that you can't say the Lord's Prayer without your mind wandering. And the other monk said, I'll take you up on that. And he started to pray, Our Father, who art in heaven, I wonder what color horse. Right, because... It had become so rote to him at that point. He just kind of was praying it and never really thought. He wasn't focused. And that can happen to us. That's the danger 
of such things as the Lord's Prayer that we pray every week. So we need to fight against that. We need to engage our hearts in those prayers and not have them be something that is just mindlessly rolling off of our tongue. We need to make sure that we are worshiping not just in a formal sense, but from our heart. I will give thanks to the Lord, the psalmist says in verse 1, with all my heart. Say, I'm just going to say the right, right words. I'm going to mouth them. I'm going to go through the motions. No. With all my heart. The psalmist calls on us to worship. And then he says he's going to do it. And this is how. Spurgeon says this. He says the best way to enforce an exhortation is to set an example. But we must let the example be of the best kind. Or we may lead others to do the work in a limping manner. What a wonderful reminder there that, that our worship and the way we go about our worship is setting an example for others. And so we should be worshiping from the heart that we might encourage others to worship from the heart. I mean, I, how often can you say that you have worshiped God with your whole heart? And how often can you say that you have worshiped God with something less than your whole heart? If you're being honest, I'm going to assume that you're like me. And that quite often, there is somewhat of a half-hearted worship. Maybe we want to worship with all of our heart, but we have so many distractions, so many other worries, so many other concerns. But the Lord is calling on us to set them all aside and come to him and worship him with all of our heart in the company of the upright, in the congregation. Right? It is not an individual thing. We need to remember that we have a... a a responsibility to one another that we are encouraging one another we are we are helping one another as it were to worship God together that's a, a double blessing we are blessed by being here but we are also a blessing to others when we are here and that is that's part of the reason why we've said this before that that it, it's a wonderful blessing of technology to be able to partake of worship through the the video that we have if you are providentially restrained from being here if you're ill if you're traveling can't get here for whatever reason but there is something you're missing out on and there's something we're missing out on because we're missing out on you if you're not here with us and so we want to be together we want to be in the company of the upright we want to realize it's not just about Jesus and me it is about us as the body of Christ we are to heed the instruction of Hebrews 10 that tells us to consider how to stir one another to love and good works not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near Christian worship is public secondly Christian worship is contextualized it it has a context right part of that context is history right now i'm not just talking about the the history of worship that indeed is part of its context but today i want to specifically talk about the history of what god has done right verse 2 tells us great are the works of the lord studied by all who delight in them choir saying of course Right? How great thou art, considering the manifold, wonderful works of God. 
right? And we, we study them and delight in them as we look at the world around us. Consider the, the Cavendish Library, which is the, the home of the Department of Physics at the University of Cambridge. Right? And, and it is a place where uh, over 30 Nobel laureates have done research and worked. It is, it is a place where such important scientific advances have been made as the discovery of the electron and the neutron and, and important breakthroughs and discovery of the structure of DNA. Uh, and if you were to go there today, as you entered through the front door, you would see over the front door this printed, the works of the Lord are great sought out of all them that have pleasure therein. Right? It's this, this same verse. It's this verse in the Psalms pointing us to this fact that we, we find pleasure, we delight in studying the works of God. Right? Because they are, as verse 3 tells us, full of splendor and majesty. Right? That, that could be with, with small works, right? As you're you're looking in under a microscope at the way DNA is structured, right? Or you're, you're seeing how, how the cells of a body hold together. Or, or maybe even things like, like we consider how when I scrape my arm and I have a cut there, it heals itself, right? I don't even need to do anything. I don't even need to think about it. I don't have to heal, 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 heal. No, it just, it just happens. The body, that's amazing, that God has created us so. Or you consider things like, like the instinctive way that animals behave in nature. I saw a video just this week of, of an elephant that was just a newborn elephant having been born. And what happened right after the elephant was born was the entire herd of elephants gathered around. They came running in and gathered around and surrounded the newborn elephant, right? And the reason is because that elephant is extremely vulnerable at that point, right? It's not a giant elephant that can thunder through. It's this little tiny elephant. He can't even walk yet. He's extremely vulnerable. And the whole group of elephants gathers around it. And it's something they do naturally, right? It's not something that they had a class, right? You know, here's community elephanting 101, okay? We need to remember. No, they can't. They, they just know to do this because God has created them this way. It is a marvelous work. We see marvelous works even on a grander scale, perhaps, when we think of the, the sun setting over Lake Michigan, or you go up to the UP, right, and you, you see Lake Superior and how beautiful it is, or the, you know, go see the, the Taquamanon Falls. You go see maybe somewhere else, the Niagara Falls and all their power and glory, and the Grand Canyon, and you behold them, and you just, you're just awed at the wonder of them. I think when we went to to uh, Hawaii, we were so blessed to be there, and some of the sights I saw there were just amazing. We went up 10,000 feet high on top of, top of Mount Haleakala and watched the sunset, and I was looking down on the clouds, and the sun was setting over the ocean, and it was just so beautiful, so amazing, and we got to go on a helicopter ride where we saw some waterfalls inland, and in it was just breathtaking, and on both occasions while I was there, I was just, I was just found my my heart just, just, just bursting as I was amazed at the works of God's handiwork. How, how amazing and majestic it was. And I literally had to just start to myself silently singing 
the doxology. Yeah, praise God from whom all blessings flow. It, it was just so wonderful, so majestic. We should realize that full of splendor and majesty is his work. And his righteousness endures forever, you see, because his work in the world is not the only place that we study his work. We also study his work in the words of Scripture, right? When we see this, his righteousness endures forever. We remember the truths that we see in the words of Scripture, right? As the hymnist has put it, great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father, there is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not thy compassions, they fail not, as thou hast been, thou forever wilt be. Right? Sometimes we, we, we look at the world around us and we, we can't believe that this is true. Right? Because we see the brokenness and the pain. Right? We have loved ones who are ill. We are ill ourselves. We, we have relationships that are crumbling. We, we're, we're confused. We're misdirected. We see so much in the world that is so terrible. We say, how can it be that God is good? In those times, especially, we need to be grounded in the scriptures and in what they teach. We need to, we need to know the truth of the scriptures, that God is at work in and through even the most terrible of things. Right? That's not something that you necessarily want to tell somebody, right? Somebody's going through a terrible situation, right? And we can, like Job's counselors, come to him and say, well, you know, God's at work in this, and it's all, it's all going to be good, so it's really not that bad. I wouldn't, I wouldn't in any way recommend that. But it is something that we want to be grounded in so that when those troubles arise, when they come our ways, the Holy Spirit can remind us of those truths, bring them to heart, and encourage us in them. Right? That's what verse 4 says. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. And this, this Hebrew word that stands behind this, wondrous works, it's actually just one word. And, and what it, it most commonly refers to is God's great works of salvation. Right? And, and we need to be reminded of the gospel. We need to be reminded that Christ took on human flesh and died for our sins. We need to be reminded that he has risen for us, that we might be justified and assured of that justification, and that we might be, be absolutely certain that God loves us. Even though things look to be against us, God loves us so much that he would not even spare his own son for us. So great is his love. Let us be grounded in that truth and remember that truth and know that what is asked rhetorically in Genesis undergirds it all. Will not the judge of the world do what is right? Right? We, we must be constantly reminding ourselves of God's past faithfulness if we are going to be confident in his future faithfulness. Right? We have to remember how he has acted in the past so that we will be sure of how he will act in the future. And that's why we gather here every week, right? That's why we gather here every week and we, we return to the cross every week, right? Because the cross is the great example of 
God's love for us, his faithfulness to us, his commitment to his people. The cross where Jesus died for us. We feed on that gospel truth. Verse 5 says he provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever just as he causes his works to be remembered. He himself remembers his covenant and that's what's most important, right? Even if we don't remember, even if we fail to remember, even if we forget his faithfulness, he will still be faithful. And what joy we have there, right? It's not a matter of me being faithful enough, me remembering his faithfulness enough, me having enough faith, me trusting strong enough, but rather a matter of him being faithful to his promises, no matter how faltering my faith is. So he has shown his people the power of his works in giving them the inheritance of the nations. Verse 6 says that inheritance is ours because, because of his grace, right? It's an inheritance that Peter tells us is imperishable and undefiled and unfading, right? It's imperishable. It can't, it can't perish. It can't go bad, right? It's unfading. The sun won't shine on it and make it lose all its color and brightness, right? No matter what happens to it, no matter what we do, there's nothing that can happen to that inheritance that is ours because God is keeping it for us. He is protecting it for us. And there is none more powerful than him. He is for us. It's not our power, but his that is doing this. The high king of heaven has won our victory for us. And now he invites us into heaven's joys and ensures us of this glorious inheritance. See, the, the context of this is the history of what he has done and also the character that he has. Actually, they're one and the same, aren't they? Right? His, character, his, his history is, is the outflow of his character. That's how it is for all of us. And so we see in verses 7 to 9, the works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and true to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. He sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant Forever. There is, as Calvin says, a beautiful harmony that characterizes all the sayings and doings of God. Because everywhere he shows himself to be faithful and just. That is who he is. He cannot do otherwise. And that's why verse 9 ends with these words Holy and awesome is his name. Right? His name, who, who he is, is holy and awesome. And so finally we see Christian worship is indeed public. Christian worship is contextualized and Christian worship is pedagogical. It trains us, it educates us. Verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And when we hear of the fear of the Lord, it's only natural that we would think of punishment, but that's not what's being talked about here. It's not talking about being scared of him being scared of the punishment that we'll receive if we do the wrong things, right? Because Christ has taken that punishment upon himself. He's already, already absorbed that punishment in totality, right? And so John Calvin can say that, that a person who fears the Lord so reverences and adores and loves God that he would tremble to sin even if there were no hell, right? It's not that we don't sin because we're afraid we're going to be punished, 
So we don't sin because we love the Lord and we want to honor the Lord and we want to glorify the Lord and we know that the Lord knows what's best for us and so we want to follow the Lord and we will be, be living for his righteousness and for his glory. That is what it means to fear the Lord. And that is why the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, right? Wisdom is looking at the world, seeing how it works, right? A child becomes more wise when he walks over to the stove and touches the top of the stove and burns his hand and decides, you know what? I'm not going to touch the top of the stove anymore. That child just became more wise, right? Because he looked at the world, he experienced the world and learned and grew from it and will live his life differently as a result. Will live his life better as a result. And that's what God is calling us to do in being wise. He's calling us to look at how the world works under his authority, under his sovereignty, under his kingship, and how we ought to change the way we live to be in accordance with his sovereign kingship. Recently, I was reminded of a friend who has the following Twitter bio. He says that, I acknowledge the old carpenter's maxim, measure twice, cut once. But I seldom adhere to it. <laughs> he knows that it's the right thing to do, and yet, I don't really always do it. Don't we live life in that way? Right? We know what's right. We know what's good. We know what's true. And yet, oh, I just don't feel like it. The Word of God tells us here that all those who practice it, that is wisdom, have a good understanding. Not all those who just intellectually know that Jesus died for our sins. Not all those who just intellectually know that he is the king. Not all those who, who just intellectually know that we ought to live our lives a certain way as a result, but the ones who actually do. Right? That is what wisdom is, living out your faith, living out its implications. How do we do that? It's so hard. Well, back in verse 2, remember, great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Let us study in the works of the Lord. Let's study in the works of the Lord in the world around us. Let's study in the works of the Lord in the scriptures. Let us look to what he has done and let us give glory to his name that his praise might endure forever. Right? That's where this psalm ends. His praise endures forever. It began, right, with this call, praise the Lord. It ends with his praise endures forever. Let us be the people that live between those two ends. Right? Let us be those people who are called to praise the Lord. Let us be those people who do praise the Lord. And let us do so for his glory in the light of the gospel. So may he be our vision and our guide and forever truly the Lord of our hearts. Would you pray with me? Lord, we, we realize that we so often fail to live wisely. We fail to worship you in that way. Correct us, we pray redirect us, even though it might at times be painful, even though it, it 
that might hurt. We pray that you would just be at work in our lives and cause us to see the bigger picture. When we put our hand on the top of the stove, may we learn from that. May we be wise. Give us eyes to see. And as we see, may we see especially you in the person of Christ Jesus. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.